Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vaz Christodoulou. I've got something a little different for the new year, a short solo talk. Dan Ariely is a superstar TED talker and a world-leading social psychologist, specialising in the study of lies and misinformation. His new book Misbelief is a guide to why some people adopt conspiratorial beliefs and how the rest of us can help rather than put more fuel on the fire. He joined us for a live stream a few weeks back to tell us more. Enjoy. Thank you very much. Lovely, lovely to be here. And uh, the topic I want uh, to talk today about is misbelief. Uh, but for those uh, who don't know me and uh, see this very strange half a beard, uh, I thought I'll explain it first. And, and the reason is somebody told me that unless I explain away this half a beard, people keep on wondering what's the point. Well, okay, so here's the story. So many years ago, I was badly burned. I spent about three years in hospital and the, the right side of my face is just fully burned. So there's no hair growing and the scar is almost symmetrical. So that's reason one. So I, I just can't grow hair on this, on this side. Um, but you can ask why not shave this side? It would look less odd, less uh, strange. And that's true. And for many years, indeed, I shaved. But then a few years ago, I went on a month long hike. And at the end of this month long hike, I look sort of like this a little bit more. And when I looked in the mirror for the first time, I didn't like uh, how I looked. This uh, half a beard uh, look is very, very strange, was strange to me. So I decided to shave it off, uh, but I thought I'll keep it for just a couple of weeks, just as a memory of this uh, month long hike. Uh, And then to my surprise, a few people wrote me and thanked me for the half a beard. Uh, Why did they thank me for the half a beard? Uh, These were uh, people who were struggling with their own injuries. Uh, They felt they were hiding something and they thought I was doing this on purpose and it gave them a little bit of courage uh, to hide their injuries a little bit less. So when people wrote me about that, I said, okay, you know, maybe I'll keep this half a beard longer if it gives somebody some um, courage that that it's a good public service announcement. But then the really strange thing happened uh, about four months later where four months later, I all of a sudden felt that I now feel differently about my um, scars. Uh, I had these scars for many, many years. I, um, why, why all of a sudden do I feel less, less strange about my scars? Why do I feel they're more part of me and not uh, something that I'm, I'm fighting? And here is what I think happened. Um, think about something, like somebody like me, uh, In the many years I shaved, I started the day with smooth on this side and little black dot stubble on this side. And the process of shaving also made me look less non-symmetrical. So in fact, when people told me it gave them some courage not to hide, that that was true for me as well. I, for many years, shaving for me was both shaving, but also um, hiding, hiding my lack of symmetry, making it less pronounced. And letting go was actually incredibly helpful. Letting go of this half a beard and saying, this is who I am, uh, created lots of self-acceptance. Now, aside from saying this about my half a beard, uh, what's the point about this and and social science? So here's, I think, the point. I'm a social scientist. I'm supposedly would have been able to predict the effect of having half a beard, the positive effect. 
But the reality is that I could predict very well uh, the effect of day one with half a beard. And let me tell you, it's not fun. People point, ask questions, kids laugh, all kinds of things happen. But there's nothing in my arsenal of um, intuitions uh, that would tell me something about how would the feedback loop from shaving and hiding and so on and stopping that would evolve four months later. It's just not something that we have good intuitions about. And that's what I think social science is supposed to do. Social science is supposed to take those cases where we don't have good intuition about and give us some hints for uh, better living. Okay, so we've done, we're done with um, uh, facial hair. Let's talk about Nice beliefs. So I wrote a few uh, books uh, during my career, and all of these books came after the research. I would do research, I would do research, I felt I had something to say, and I, I wrote I wrote a book that was based on this on this research. Uh, the story of this latest book is, is very different. This case started with something that was uh, trusted uh, upon me. And, and what's the story? So roll back the time. We're in early COVID days. And I feel that I'm incredibly helpful. Uh, I got questions from companies and governments about distance education and distance uh, work and about furlough and about uh, encouraging people to wear masks and uh, what do we do with domestic violence and whether the police should give fines or not. Lots and lots of interesting questions. Um, it was a time for lots of uncertainty when people had to change their behavior. So lots of, lots of opportunities to think about uh, behavior change. And um, I feel I'm incredibly helpful. And then one day in July, so quite a few months into it, I get a, an email from somebody who says, Dan, what's wrong with you? How have you changed so much? And I write back, I said, how have I changed? And I get back a list, a long list of links. And I'll just describe one of them. In one of those links, there's a, there's a video about 90 seconds long that describe how I was badly injured, shows some pictures of me in hospital. And then it goes ahead saying that that got me to hate healthy people. And that's why I joined Bill Gates and the Illuminati, the cabal, to try and kill as many healthy people as possible. And that's where the pandemic and the vaccine are, are coming from. Uh, in case you're wondering, uh, not true. Uh, by the way, we're quite many years after this. Um, I still get death threats. And the last one that was sent to my university uh, frightened them so much that they had to refer it to the authorities. Anyway, um, I got all of these links. I didn't know what to do. Uh, so I consulted some experts and they said unanimously, don't touch it. Don't talk to anybody, don't touch it. But uh, despite the fact that I asked for advice, I couldn't follow. I, I had such an urge. I had such a feeling that if I could only talk to these people, they would see that I just have good intentions and anything that they're saying about me is, is a mistake. So I spent the next month trying to convince them that this ain't so, and I failed miserably. And you know, we, we all have people in our lives that have strange beliefs. You know, maybe we have people that five years ago, we thought that we see the world as they do, and now we're saying, you know, I really don't understand how, 
how did I ever see the world in, how did I ever think that you and me are the same? We're seeing things so differently. And, and we all have those experiences, but when somebody says that they know something about you and they're wrong, there's something very eerie about that feeling. Like how can, here I'm telling you something about me and you're telling me that I'm wrong in this thing about me. Anyway, after a month of failure, I took a back seat and um, decided to just try and study these things, just try to understand what is going on. Uh, so I started talking to all kinds of people. Uh, I have about 20 uh, serious misbelievers that I talk to regularly. I did some research and I basically tried to understand the question, um, how is it the case that there are people who end up with such different beliefs? How does it, how does it happen? And, and the end story, which I'll, I'll tell you about the different components, the end story is to think about this as, as a metaphor for a cookie. So a cookie is basically a, an engineered food that is designed to attack human weaknesses. Uh, sugar, fat, salt. It's designed to attack human weaknesses in optimal combination that will make us want one and then have another one, another one, and another one. The funnel of misbelief, which is this machine that I will describe to you next, is almost designed perfectly to attack lots of our psychology, our emotional system, our cognitive system, our personality, our social system, and to deteriorate our opinions to get to things that are not necessarily in our best interest and not in the best interest of our friends or society. And one other thing to understand is that the people who fall down the funnel of misbelief are kind and wonderful and intelligent. It's not as if you say, oh, it's me and them. No, no, no. Um, they can be wonderful people, uh, but they just were in the circumstances that made them fall down this, this funnel of misbelief. Okay, so what is this funnel of misbelief? The, the building block, the conditions that are necessary for creating uh, misbelief is basically stress. And I don't mean stress of the, of the kind that says, oh, I don't know what, how I'll manage my day, I have so much to do. I mean stress of the type, I don't understand the world. Something is happening, I'm not getting my share, uh, I don't understand what is going on, why am I sick and other people don't sick, why is my significant other, why did I lose my job, why my kids, why, why, why? People who feel that something is not right in the world and they're not getting their, their share. Hard done by. Okay, so it starts with this. Now, now why is this uh, creating uh, the, the, the first steps? Imagine two tribes of fishermen. Uh, one tribe of fishermen has a more predictable life. They fish in a lake. Another tribe of uh, fishermen have less predictable life. They fish in the deep ocean. Which one of those two tribes do you think develop more superstitions? The one in the deep sea. Why? Unpredictability basically compels us to find the story. We have a very hard time dealing with uncertainty. We want the world to make sense. And our brains basically look for structures that would uh, make things feel 
as if they make sense. So we have this urge to find a story. Now, not all stories are created equal. Some stories are better than others. Which one are the stories that are better? The first thing is we want a story with a villain. Why do we want a story with a villain? Because we want to deflect blame. Why am I not doing well? Well, it's not me, it's whoever. So we want a story and we want a story with the villain. And we also want a complex story. Why do we want a complex story? There's a couple of reasons for it. But the first one is it gives people a sense of superiority. Oh, society is looking down on me. I actually know something that you don't. The world is really run by lizard people, all kinds of things that came from this planet and had all kinds of um, things. But instead of the world looking down on me, I now say, look, I know something that all of you don't. And it gives people a feeling of strength, of knowledge, of control, and so on. So that's the, the breeding grounds for, for misbelief. Without it, nothing, nothing happens. Now, maybe this is a good time to define what I mean by misbelief. I mean two things. The first one is that we hold the belief in something that ain't so, or the experts think is not, is not so. But the, most the more important component is that that belief is a very important central tendency in people's lives. It's not just about the belief, it's about the fact that it's central to people's life and it's a lens from which they view everything else. So imagine that, um, you know, I believe that kale is not healthy. Okay, I believe that kale is not healthy. It's not going to be a central tendency in my life and it's not going to be a lens from which I'm going to view everything. But imagine that I believe that the earth is flat. Well, that's a very much more complex belief. Now I believe that NASA is lying to us and every pilot is lying to us. And I believe that every government knows and is lying, that every space program is lying. That, uh, and, and, and now it's not just a belief, oh, maybe the earth is flat. It's a belief that says, my goodness, I'm looking at everything with the lens of suspicion. Who else is lying to me? If NASA is lying to me about this, what else are they lying to me about? If the government is lying to me, what else are they lying about? And so on. So misbelief is both about the, the reality, but also about the, the fact that it becomes a, a lens from which people view everything else. Okay, so we said that's the, the building block. Now comes the cognitive part. The cognitive part is basically the part we process, we process information. It's about the way we choose what information we want to see and which information we don't. Do we watch the BBC or do we watch Al Jazeera, right? Do we, which, which one do we watch? Do we watch CNN, Fox News or NBC? What, what, are we, what are we watching? The second part of that cognitive part is our ability to ignore, discount and bend information. Uh, we can see three pieces of information. One supports our position, two are against it, and we ignore the ones that are against it or uh, amplify the one that is supporting us. And the third one is the one I'll focus on now. We're still in the cognitive component is about the fact that our confidence is often dramatically disproportional to our knowledge. And 
One version of this is called the illusion of explanatory depth. The illusion of explanatory depth. Now, uh, uh, one way that I demonstrated it is to show people a flush toilet. Flush toilet. And to ask them, hey, do you understand how a flush toilet works? I said, yes. I said, okay, on a scale from, let's say, zero to 100, how much do you understand how flush toilet works? So understand it very well. Okay. Luckily for you, we have all the pieces of a flush toilet right here. Please assemble it. And let's see if you can. Uh, people try. In my uh, test, nobody could assemble it. But then we go back to them and say, how confident are you that you know uh, your, the, in your knowledge about flush toilet? And all of a sudden, people say, I don't really understand it very well. Now, what is the logic here? The logic is that usually when we try to convince people, we, we try to argue. We say, hey, you're thinking this way, but here's another piece of information. Or you didn't say you didn't see this. And what about this? And we attack. But of course, when we attack, other people defend themselves. Usually people think about counter-arguing with us even before we finish the sentence. So in fact, as people start arguing, sometimes and not, not only are people not convinced, sometimes they become even more sure in their original opinion because they practiced a lot their own, uh, their own argument. So the illusion of exploratory depth basically saying, don't attack people, come at it from their perspective. And basically say, I accept your view, just help me understand it. So for example, imagine that we talked about the US elections. And we came to people and we say, you're saying that the elections were stolen. Fine, we're not arguing with you. How do elections work? How does it work? How do people tally the, the votes? And people try to explain it and then they realize they don't really understand and they don't really know. And then you say, okay, and how would the vote exactly be stolen? And again, people try to describe it and just by trying to describe it, they realize they don't really know how it happens. Now, does these exercises get people to say, oh, you know what, then the elections were not stolen? Of course not. We're not expecting this big of a change, but we get people from being 100% certain to having less certainty, maybe 90%. But because we said that misbelief is not about the belief, it's about how strong this is a central tendency in people's lives, even reducing something to a 90% belief is incredibly helpful. Okay, so we said stress, emotional part, we said cognitive, there's a couple of elements, but we focused on the illusion of explanatory depth. Then comes the part of personality. Now, I should point out that while the stress component is necessary, the personality component is just a small component. It's very interesting, but it's just a small component. So if you have those personality trait, traits, it doesn't mean you will become a misbeliever. And if you don't have them, it doesn't mean you would not. It just means that if you have those personality traits, your path down uh, the funnel of misbelief will be smoother. You will go faster. And if you don't, it will be a little slower. But it's not that a guarantee to deterministic guarantee to either do it or not this episode of the podcast is sponsored by marquee tv 
Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than hey? Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So what are some of those personality traits that get people to go down the, uh, the funnel of misbelief? Uh, one of the most interesting ones is our tendency to trust our intuition. So there's a, there's a survey tool um, that is based on questions like the following. A baseball bat and a baseball ball cost together a dollar ten. A baseball bat and a baseball ball cost together a dollar ten. The bat cost a dollar more than the ball. The bat cost a dollar more than the ball. And the question is, how much does the ball cost? Think about it for a second. Okay. Now, for most people, the first answer that pops into their mind is 10 cents. And then some people just say it. And some people take the time and they say, well, let me test it. Together, they're a dollar 10. The difference is a dollar. If the difference is a dollar and the ball costs 10 cents, it means the bat will be a dollar 10. If the bat costs a dollar more than a ball and the ball is 10 cents, the bat will be a dollar 10. But together, that's a dollar 20. That doesn't fit because Dan said together there'll be a dollar 10. So each of them needs to be five cents less. So maybe the ball is five cents and the bat is a dollar five. Yes, now the difference is a dollar and together they're a dollar 10. That works. Now, this math to figure out that the correct answer is five cents and a dollar five is not difficult. Everybody can do it. But some people trust their gut intuition. They trust it so much that they just say it without checking. And guess what? The people who just say their gut intuition without checking are also the people who go down the funnel to a higher degree. Why? They have a problem. They have an intuition. They see some evidence. They don't check it the full way. It sounds reasonable. And then they end up believing it. And there's a couple of other um, interesting uh, personality trait. One of them is patternicity, our ability to see things and connect patterns. By the way, a very good trait for artists, also a good trait for scientists, right? to see patterns. And, oh, I see some connections very, very creative. But it also means that people are able to see patterns that are not really not really there. 
Okay, and there's a couple of other ones, but you get the you get the point. And then the last component, the thing that seals the deal, is really the social element. And and I call this the funnel of misbelief because not only does it have different components, but I want to make sure that that we we keep in mind this idea that at some point it becomes harder to bring people back. So if somebody is in the initial stages of stress, we can bring them back. But if somebody is at the social um, element, um, that's going to be uh, that's going to be very tough. Okay, so what is the, the social element? And I'll, I'll spend a bit more time on this one because it, it has subcomponents. So, so the first part is ostracism. And the research on ostracism is fascinating. Uh, one of the first researchers to examine this uh, described the following story. He says he was walking in the park uh, with his dog and he saw two people playing frisbee. They were playing frisbee, playing frisbee. All of a sudden, the frisbee lands next to his feet. He picks it up, he throws it to one of them, and to his surprise, they throw it back to him. And the three of them end up playing for a few minutes. Great. But then they stop throwing it to him. And he said he felt terrible. Now, he didn't come to the park to play, he didn't know them, but nevertheless, he felt ostracized. So then he went forward and experimented with this. And the way he experimented with this, he invited people to come to an experiment. So imagine a participant is arriving. Unbeknown to that participant, he meets two other people who work for the experimenter. But they don't know that they work for the experimenter, they think they're all participants. And they say to the people, please wait outside for 10 minutes. We'll call you in 10 minutes when the experiment is ready for you. And in those 10 minutes, one of two things happened. Either one of the research assistant, hidden as a participant, picks up a ball and they start kicking the ball between the three of them for 10 minutes, full participation, or one of the research assistant picks up the ball, a ball starts kicking it for five minutes they make it go between the three people and then they stop throwing to the real participants. So now the real participants, there are two types. There's a type that played for 10 minutes and there's a type that played for five minutes and then felt ostracized for five minutes. Now they go into the lab and now we can test how they are. What effect does it have on behavior? And it turns out the effects are very pronounced. It influences optimism and feeling of acceptance and a desire to give to charity and dishonesty. It, it, it really changes people in a very deep way. And in an fMRI study, they even show that the brain mechanisms involved are quite similar to physical pain. So ostracism is a big deal. Now, why am I mentioning ostracism is because when people start having these non-standard beliefs, uh, we often ostracize them. And uh, I will admit uh, that I used to have this phrase, and when, when somebody gave me some strange theory about, about the world, my favorite phrase to use was, what color is the sky in your world? Now, I thought it was slightly funny. I'm sure there were 
highly offended. But every time we, we ostracize somebody, we think it's a, it's a small comment, they take it as a big, as a big offense, as a big asymmetry there. So, so we ostracize people. And, and when we ostracize people, what are they looking for? What are they looking for? They're looking for a community that would show them support. And in the online world today, you can find whatever community you want that would show you support. And those communities are wonderful from that, from that perspective. So there was one post where somebody detailed my crimes against humanity. He thought I was the consciousness architect of the, of the cabal. And he detailed my crimes against humanity. And he predicted that after COVID, there will be uh, Nuremberg 2.0 trials. And lots of people, including me, would, would be found guilty for our crimes against humanity. Uh, and he asked the question of whether I think, uh, whether the people reading his, his post think that I should be given life in prison or public hanging. And there were about a thousand people responded. Um, and when you, when you look at the responses, they were incredibly positive toward him. They congratulated him for the quality of his writing and his insight and all kinds of, lots of hearts, emojis, all kinds of wonderful things. Now, in the same way that we said that misbelief are not for nothing, they fulfill a goal. The people who are adopting those are adopting them because they have a real need for a story with a villain that is complex. They, they feel a real need. I wish they, they, this need would be solved in a different way, but they are solved by these misbeliefs. The same thing, the fact that those communities are so nice and wonderful and kind to each other is not for nothing. It has a reason. And the reason is that these people need the support and the communities have evolved to give that support. So in the social mechanism, we said it starts with ostracism. And then on the other side, there's tremendous acceptance and then people move, move forward. The next step is what we call shibolet. And shibolet is a term from the Bible. And the story is that there were these two tribes that had a very bitter fight. And after the fight, they split into two sides of the river. But from time to time, they would meet people and they did not know if they were from their own tribe or from the other tribe. Now, it just so happened that these two tribes pronounced the name of the plant, Shibolet in Hebrew, they pronounced it slightly differently. One of them said Shibolet, and one of them said Sibolet. So what happened is that when they met somebody, they would show them the plant and say, how do you call this? And if the person said it the same way that they did, everything was fine. Hugged were from the same tribe. And if they said it the wrong way, they chased them away or tried to kill them or something. Now, we use this term now to symbolize the idea that sometimes the discourse is not about what it is. When I show you this plant and I say, how do you call it? I don't really care about the plant. I don't really care about the name of it. What I'm really asking you is, what's your identity? What's your identity? And Shibolet is now being used for a conversation that might seem it's about something else, what's the name of this plant, but it's really about identity. And actually, if you look online at all kinds of conversations, 
I'm sure you'll be able to recognize lots of places where the conversation might look like it's about one thing, but it's actually about identity. And by the way, it's true about the right and it's true about the left political spectrum. It's not as if we tend to think it's only the other side. No, it's not the, it's not the other side. There's a lot of identity posturing, identity signaling that is camouflage as if there's a real discussion and, and, real, uh, and real information. Now, what that means, though, is discussions escalate. Why? Because if I want to show my identity, I can't just say run-of-the-mill things. I have to things that are more extreme. Um, so what happened is that people showed their identity by saying, look what a strong right-wing person I am. Look what a strong left-wing person I am. Look what a strong liberal, environmental, whatever, you know, First Amendment person, whatever it is. People are saying all kinds of very, very exaggerated things to basically signal, uh, signal identity. But that creates uh, an escalation. Because all of a sudden, we have a new height of something, but that becomes standard after a while, and people have to continue. And the last part I will mention in terms of the funnel of misbelief is cognitive dissonance. Now, all of us know about cognitive dissonance, but just to kind of make sure we're on the same page, let's remind ourselves about the original study on cognitive dissonance, by Festinger. So Festinger heard about this woman who said that on a particular date, the earth will be destroyed. And she also said that on that day, uh, aliens will come and rescue her and her followers. Everybody else will be destroyed. Now, some people followed her and some people came. And what Festinger wondered was, who would be more disappointed the next day when the world would not be destroyed? He assumed that she was not a, a true prophet and he assumed the world would not be destroyed. And he said, imagine there are these two extreme sides. Of course, it's not two, but there's a continuum. But imagine there's the hardcore believers. These are the people that said goodbye to their families and sold their properties and gave all their money to charity, all kinds of things like that. Imagine them. How disappointed would they be? And presumably they would be very, very disappointed. And maybe be so disappointed they'll leave the next morning. On the other hand, think about the people who didn't commit that much. People say, oh, you know, maybe she's real, maybe she's not. I don't know. I'll just hang out here just in case. In, in the standard logic, those people say, oh, you know, we thought maybe yes, maybe not, but we're not that disappointed. So the standard theory would predict that they're really hard followers would be the most disappointed and therefore the ones most likely to leave the next day disappointed and angry. But when Festinger predicted, and actually what he found was the opposite. Festinger predicted that the people who were the die-hard followers gave up so much to her, for her, that they couldn't admit their mistake. They couldn't stand the dissonance be between I sold my house, I gave my money away, I said goodbye to everybody, and now it looks like she was a false prophet. Now, they can't change what they did, so what do they do? 
they reinvigorate their level of belief in that prophet. So Festinger said that those people who've committed a lot to the cause could not admit that they were wrong and they would have to shape again their beliefs to support it. And that's what he saw. Those people became even more committed to her. They went out to raise more money. They went to look for more people to join their increase, their commitment. And by the way, we see the same thing now with the people who were uh, COVID deniers. After spending so much time, so much energy, so much group, you think it's easy to say, oh, COVID is over or to say, oh, we're wrong. No, they're basically um, committed to the cause, their actions, you know, in psychology, there's always a question, are beliefs causing action? That's what we usually think. I believe X, so I'll act this way. Or do actions cause belief? And what cognitive dissonance says, action can cause belief. Now, of course, it's, it's a bit of both. It's not just cognitive dissonance, but it's about the idea that beliefs cause action, but action cause belief. And if people behave in a certain way for a while, they gave up all kinds of things, they got committed to a cause, they posted things, they went to demonstration, all kinds of things like that, that changes preference and people start uh, believing, uh, believing that. Okay, so we said there's this thing called the funnel of misbelief. We said it has four elements, stress, cognition, personality, and social. The, the stressful part is what creates the breeding grounds, the social part is what, what seals the deal, and then there are lots of other things uh, in the middle that accelerate this, this process. When I started writing this book, I was planning on writing a, a chapter that would be called Solutions. I ended up not having a chapter called Solution. I ended up having little sections in the middle called Hopefully Helpful. And this for me is because um, we're still not in a solution phase. Now, I think there's a lot of things to do. Uh, there are things to do on the stress level, there are things to do on the cognitive side, on the personality side, there are things to do on the social side. But, but some of those things are big, like changing the way we consume media. Uh, some things are big, like the way we do social media. Some things are big in a way that we um, have low resilience in society, which is an antidote to, to stress. So it's not easy. Yeah, but I think the, the first step is to recognize how big the problem, to recognize that we collectively have inadvertently created a system that is not serving us and actually making things worse for us. And, and the big picture of all of this is trust. So, you know, there's this funnel of misbelief, but as people go down the funnel of misbelief, people also lose trust in institutions. And um, trust is a little bit like the, the story about the fish, right? That the fish don't know that they're in water because they're surrounded by it. And we are living in a society that has lots of trust. And because of that, we don't see how important trust is. But the reality is that we have a ton of trust. Uh, we trust that the elevator we go into had inspection and we trust that the food that we eat uh, is not poisoned and we trust that if we call police, somebody would show up. The amount of things that we trust is, is quite incredible. Uh, but 
as people go down the funnel of misbelief, uh, trust is being eroded. And I see more and more of the discussions online in some of the darkest places on the internet that I joined uh, are about stopping believing pharmaceutical companies, adopting alternative treatments for, uh, for cancer, uh, calling uh, to people to stop getting any uh, vaccinations or any medical treatment, uh, reducing uh, tax payment. And the reality is that we all work together and we all need to work together. Uh, if we want to solve some of the big uh, problems ahead of us, uh, we have to work together. If we fight with each other, it's not going to work out. Um, think about questions like climate change or the possibility of a third world war. Even, even think about the question of misbelief. Uh, we have to basically take some things, uh, obesity, whatever. Uh, we have to we have to work together. How uh, how likely are we uh, to work together versus fight with each other? And um, well, a, a big part of it is how much we see ourselves as as one people and how much uh, trust we have in our uh, institutions and and in another one another. And as as those things go down, the odds of uh, moving forward are lower and lower. Now, all of this sounds quite uh, depressing, uh, but the reality is that, you know, the way humanity progresses is that we invent all kinds of things that we think are great. And then we realize that they're not that great or that not, not perfect and we need to change it. You know, it was not many years ago that we thought that social media networks uh, would bring democracy to the world. Remember the Arab Spring. Now, uh, very few people think this way, and most people think they're doing more harm than, than good. You know, it's, it's, we need to recognize the, the potential downsides, and then we need to start thinking about what we, can, what we can do to change it. Okay, last point. You know, in lots of places, in lots of workplaces, uh, they tell us to not talk about touchy topics. Uh, they don't want us to argue or fight. But the reality is that what we need is we need to be exposed to different opinions by people that we appreciate. Uh, if we'll each of us go to our own information bubble and not uh, be exposed to anything else, the odds that we will uh, develop an open perspective or flexible worldview that would be able to you know, encapsulate multiple ideas is very, very low. Uh, so I think we need to figure out how to do that, how to, how to start having uh, respectful conversations with uh, people we disagree with, uh, reduce our certainty from 100% to a little bit less, and uh, move forward in a collaborative and not uh, argumentative this episode starred Dan Ariely. The producer was me, Vas Christodoulou, and I make the show with Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. Till next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>